Welcome everyone to a spooky Halloween media sandwich where the sandwich is made of brains and blood and guts. Ah, ah, ah. I am Count Kyle, the Vampire Do Podcast. Now we will start by talking about the video game news. The first headline, it comes from Polygon.com. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> this shit's terrible. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I did that. Um, can you imagine if I did the whole podcast like that for like an hour? I'd have to kick my own ass. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Kyle Martinak. Um, and this is a Halloween version of Media Sandwich where I just talk like my normal self because... Good grief good grief in july why would i why would i do that <laughs> holy hell everybody there's so much going on since the last time you heard my dulcet not entirely masculine tones uh so much things happening in pop culture but a lot of it happened uh that doesn't necessarily fit into my category boxes too well this week so i'm sorry about that I'm gonna try my best but Look, it is what it is. The news is the news. I don't control it. I just spew it at you. But uh, we'll start out not with a headline from Polygon.com. Wanted to start with some updates of things we've covered previously. First off, uh, back in episode 27 of this year podcast, aptly named Just One More Thing, uh, we talked about Ryan Johnson's quiet little project he was making with Peacock. Uh, it's a TV series starring Natasha Lyonne as a sort of detective investigating a murder, somewhat in line with the internet's cries to make Natasha Lyonne the next Columbo. That show, Poker Face, just got a little teaser this last week, and it looks really neat. I really want to watch this show. I can't wait for it to release in uh, January on Peacock. And I think it's official. After the last couple of weeks, I have to keep Peacock. <laughs> It's it's the streaming service that's always on the chopping block in my household. Netflix is more like a utility that I don't want to pay for anymore, but if I got rid of it, there'd be an uprising, and I don't think I can survive a coup right now. I'm already rendered immobile by my broken foot. Uh, HBO Max is the one I use the most, probably. What with, you know, it's really good library that's slowly dwindling away, but it's it's really good. Amazon Prime is just kind of built into the price we pay for free shipping around this house, honestly, so it's just kind of icing on the cake. It's gravy. Uh, Hulu and Disney and ESPN are all bundled together for our household, and each one of them serves a very specific purpose that definitely justifies the price. Paramount Plus has Star Trek, for me, and Nickelodeon for the kids, so yeah, can't let go of that one. Peacock always seems like the least essential one that we actually pay money for but it's also the cheapest one that we pay money for and it's already paid for itself this month it saved me a movie ticket for halloween ends after all so yeah peacock a secret success especially if they spend the dough on things like poker face which i i, I just can't wait for that sounds great um another update uh we talked last week about damon lindelof's signing on to jumpstart the Star Wars feature film franchise, a franchise that shouldn't need a jumpstart, but it does anyway. 
Well, right after I uploaded last week's episode, I mean within the hour that I uploaded the episode, a plethora of new information spilled out about that movie that's happening. For starters, I missed the mark entirely on what era of the Star Wars universe this new movie would tackle. I figured, since the Disney Plus shows are all putting together kind of a CW Arrowverse kind of thing where they can do crossovers and whatnot, at least within Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, and Ahsoka, which is coming up soon, I figured, hey, it would be a no-brainer, set this movie in the same era, the post-war reconstruction era, immediately after Return of the Jedi. That way you can develop 30 years worth of lore about the New Republic in movies and TV without worrying about bumping into the sequel trilogy, which, if you don't remember abruptly vaporized the entire New Republic so that the good guys could be the underdogs again. Well, uh, it turns out the movie is going to take place post-Rise of Skywalker instead, so it can explore uh, another post-war reconstruction era, but one where Daisy Ridley might pop up in a post credit scene looking for Jedi students or something. You know, that's that's how they make these things these days, so that's fine. You know, I wouldn't mind that. I'm me, so I'm in for whatever they want to give me that has Star Wars attached to it. I just think Star Wars is neat. Uh, they're very quick to say in the news stories about this, though, that they will not continue the Skywalker saga, actually. Uh, this movie is not going to do that. So while characters from that sequel trilogy are likely to pop up, it likely would not be the leads, and they would not be the leads of the new movie or its uh, continuation. My money is on Maz Kanata will show up, because that's an easy character that you can plug in. She's effectively immortal, like a Yoda or a Chewbacca. So all you have to do, pay Lupita Nyong'o to show up and, and do the character. I like that character a lot, so I don't mind her appearing as kind of the new wise you know, little person that can you know, give you a, a cool monologue about your destiny, fine, sounds good. But anyway, the details went further on the behind-the-scenes of the movie. Uh, Lindelof actually assembled a secret writer's room after the latest Star Wars Celebration event in which they just kind of, they locked him in a room and they nailed down a basic story of what this movie's going to have, picked the main, he picked his main collaborator, who is a young writer by the name of Justin Britt Gibson. Who is that? Well, he's an up-and-comer, especially now, but he was an executive story editor for Guillermo del Toro's The Strain, and he wrote a few episodes of The Counterpart, a show on stars that stars uh, J.K. Simmons, and uh, that show is pretty cool. It deals with parallel dimensions and whatnot. I haven't seen a lot of it, but... Yeah, uh, sounds like uh, the ideal person to kind of collaborate with Damon Lindelof on where Star Wars can go from here. Uh, they are currently figuring it out, and while the movie's currently planned to be a standalone story, it also is going to leave the door open for direct sequels, obviously. So to me, that sounds encouraging, honestly. It, it sounds like they maybe learned some lessons from going into Star Wars in 2012, being like, well, we have to do a trilogy. We have to do 7, 8, and 9. We have to continue the Skywalker saga. That's just how Star Wars is done. And then they tapped a guy who hates doing endings. Then they tapped a guy who likes to subvert expectations completely. Then they tapped a guy who just kind of sucks, fired him, and brought back the guy who hates endings to do the ending. Uh... <laughs> 
I like the sequel trilogy better than most people do, actually. But even I have to stare at it in hindsight and just laugh at how hilariously unprepared they were to pay the check on that promise of an epic trilogy to cap off the Skywalker saga. A phrase that I kind of hate now, because it's a phrase that didn't even exist until they were like halfway into episode eight and they started talking about this as the saga of the Skywalker dynasty. And really that's not what star Wars had to be. That's what it kind of was after the prequel trilogy. Sure. But anyways, now in star Wars, there's freedom to play around a little bit. And it sounds like they want to be very cautious and not count their chickens, not, not set up a billion sequels that might not be relevant in two years' time when they get around to making them, uh, which is good. But, I mean, come on, wh whatever this movie is, it will have sequels. It's going to make money no matter what, and therefore it will have sequels. That's the way Star Wars works. Uh, but anyway, I digress and I talk about Star Wars too much, man. Uh, let's move on to fresher news of the week, and we will start out as we always do with video games. Uh, only have one real video game thing to talk about this week, because it's the big video game that released. The ads for it are all over the place, all over my timeline, on the side of buses and shit. Modern Warfare 2 released this week, and here's where I start to show my typical weekly video game ignorance. Uh, <laughs> I haven't really fucked around with a Call of Duty game since, like, Black Ops 2, so it's been a hot minute. Uh, I happen to be a single-player campaign kind of guy, so you can kind of understand why I haven't dabbled in a while. It's been a hot decade or so since the Call of Duty games were known for their single-player campaigns, uh, with innovative features like a plot, or characters, or narrative stakes. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to be too big of an asshole here. I realize that it's actually quite curmudgeonly of me to dismiss the entire series and indeed a whole like subgenre at this point for swerving away from heavy cinematic storytelling and further towards just, you know, naked competitive play. I've established on this podcast I am an old person. I'm an old and confused man who doesn't understand esports or the metagame or any of that stuff. I just want to pick up a controller and pretend I'm something much cooler than I am for a little bit. And for me, part of that is story. I need a good story. And while the story of the original Modern Warfare trilogy was, let's say, muddled, that's a good word to describe a bit of a clusterfuck, right? Uh, it was a bit muddled. They were still attempting something cinematic, though. They had characters, they had villains, they had plot twists. They were on par with your average, like, Tom Clancy-branded game or Tom Clancy-branded novel or movie in terms of depicting modern warfare and political intrigue. And, and they made for some cool set-piece moments, too. I liked that trilogy for that reason. It felt... it was fun. They, it, they were fun, dumb, fun games. Uh, but anyway, I don't really quite understand what happened to the Call of Duty franchise since the last time I picked it up. About the time it got split between Infinity Ward and Treyarch, suddenly it was like two competing Call of Duty franchises from parallel universes were happening. Because Infinity Ward was doing the Modern Warfare trilogy and its spinoffs like uh, uh, Ghosts. Anybody remember Ghosts? No, it's okay. Uh, nobody remembers that one. <laughs> but uh, while they were doing that, you know, uh, 
in between those, Treyarch was doing the Black Ops series, and also Sledgehammer Games was farting around with World War II and then that weird future set one. And at some point, right around the same time that they did the, uh, just a couple of years ago, they did that next-gen remake of Call of Duty 4, colon, Modern Warfare, the, you know, 2007 one, they did... I, to, to my understanding, it was like, let's do a next-gen console remake of that old 2007 game. But at the same time, they also decided to uh, to reboot the whole Modern Warfare subseries and came out with a game just titled Call of Duty, colon, Modern Warfare. And then they rebooted the Black Ops series with something called Black Ops Cold War, so I'm sitting here, old guy that I am, going, okay, so what are you doing here? Is this a hard reset of the storylines for both? Is this a retelling of the old stories with updated stuff, like updated graphics, but also maybe updated mm, politics and whatnot? Uh, because, you know, the first Modern Warfare, the 2007 Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, the politics were very, very, you know, post 9-11 uh, U.S. military intervention in the Middle East kind of feeling. And, you know, public opinion about that kind of stuff has decidedly shifted in the last 15 years. So I was thinking, is that what they did? Is just kind of update that story with maybe smarter, more up-to-date politics? Uh, but apparently not, because in the case of uh, that Modern Warfare, uh, the 2019 Modern Warfare reboot, they bring back Captain Price and Soap and Gaz and Sergeant Griggs and a bunch of other characters who are the stars of that Modern Warfare trilogy, 07, 09, 2011 trilogy, all of whom died in those games. Spoilers for, you know, 15-year-old games. And uh, plot-wise, the 2019 reboot is kind of like a remix of the famous elements and moments from those games but done in kind of like a Batman Begins way to freshen up those plot points and make them seem new again by reintroducing them. Like, there's a no-Russian moment. I think this, that's in the new one that just came out this week. But uh, the bad guys are launching nukes, and there's a arms dealer named Zakaev, but it, I don't know if it's the same guy. Uh, you know, it's there are elements. There are very broad plot strokes that are the same to kind of remind you, hey, remember when this happened in the old trilogy? Well, now it's happening again. Ha isn't it great? Um, there's a shocking moment where all the American soldiers are killed. I always hated when that happened in that trilogy. It became almost a gag where it was like, oh, I'm playing as an American. There's a very good chance that at the end of this very hard mission, I might just be killed by a nuclear blast. So, um... Anyway, basic building blocks of an Infinity Ward story are present in these new ones, but they wanted the characters back. They wanted their flagship characters for this uh, for this series back in the saddle after they had killed all of them. So they're like, well, you know what? We're just going to do a hard reboot of the plot with the same characters and very, very similar elements. So they reset the timeline, basically. They reset the, ti the timeline, started over, Basically the way you do in comic books, right? Where it's like, all right, issue number one, Spider-Man. Um, and everything that happened up until now no longer applies. We're, we're, st we're starting from scratch, but with all of the characters that you know. 
Uh, that's not that hard for me to understand, but for some reason it really tripped me up because they also have this bad habit of naming the game the same damn thing that it was named 10 years ago. So what the hell am I supposed to... Like, I don't know how many Doom games there are now. There's a new series of Doom games. I have no idea which one is which. You go into you go into the, uh, the, the Xbox uh, Game Pass uh, portal and you're looking at all of the games named Doom. There are three games that are just called Doom. How the hell am I supposed to differentiate them? At least put the date at the end. Put 1993, put 2007 or whatever it was, and put 2019. Please, I beg you. Anyway, back to Modern Warfare. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, they reset the timeline, started over, and you can kind of tell that the new games, the 2019 game and Modern Warfare 2 that came out this week, have a very different kind of cinematic influence to them. The original Modern Warfare trilogy, to me, kind of felt like they were going for a more action-oriented version of, like, clear and present danger or executive decision. Those kind of mid-90s political pot boilers that also had like a, a black ops team like hiding in the woods ready to execute you know on a on a drug lord or something like that uh these new ones i think are aiming more towards american sniper sicario uh uh what's that show on showtime uh, homeland that's kind of the idea so lots of like personal emotional baggage for the characters, lots of morally gray areas and choices that you, the player, get to make in theory, you know, in theory, like, oh, do you execute this guy or do you let him go? A lot of folks would argue that the amount of U.S. and U.K. military intervention across these games is already highly mor morally dubious to begin with, so... What's, you know, what's some dumb choice about whether or not you blow a guy's head off? You've literally killed 100 people to get to him. But anyway, uh, the reviews are in on Modern Warfare 2, the sequel to the reboot of the modern set sequel to a series of games that used to just be your basic World War II first-person shooter. <laughs> That's my sum up of it. Uh, the new game's reviews are not great, Bob. Uh, Plot-wise... The new game, the newest one, Modern Warfare 2, kind of shoves that morally gray area bug further up the ass than it really needs to. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Jump ahead five minutes or so if you don't want to hear about the plot of the new game. But there is, uh, I'll count it down, three, two, one. Now we're talking spoilers. Uh, but there's a section of the game where you're shooting people off of the U.S.-Mexico border wall as they're trying to climb it. While you're playing as a Mexican special forces operative, and they are bad guys, they're armed like uh, they're they're armed, I think drug cartel operatives or something like that. So they're not innocent people. That's not the no Russian moment. But later on, you do have to shoot armed U.S. civilians who try to start a firefight with you on the other side of the wall, and then the Texas law enforcement arrives and arrests you basically for being a Mexican with a gun after that firefight, essentially. Uh, there's a moment where you uh, infiltrate a safe house for a bad guy, and there's like a woman on the floor crying over the a person who's just been killed by your team, and then she picks up a gun and starts firing at you, so you have to kill her. And that's all really kind of gross. It's all kind of gross. 
But anyway, lots of conservative wankfest fantasies about Middle Eastern terrorists being funneled and aided by Mexican drug cartels. That's kind of the plot of this game. Uh, CIA and privatized military companies taking advantage of targeted strikes in foreign lands to acquire forces and weapons that they ordinarily wouldn't be allowed to have, etc., so on and so forth, rinse and repeat. Uh, per the reviews, it's the game itself, pretty lackluster. Uh, the campaign is only about six hours long, which... Ooh, okay, that officially prices me out of the game. Uh, nope, I am not spending release date money on a six-hour campaign, no way. Uh, but essentially, the reviews largely pointed out that this one is inferior to the 2019 game that it's a sequel to. Apparently that one actually was pretty good, but this is kind of inferior, it's kind of a lackluster sequel, and it's also kind of inferior to the 2009 game, of which it's an implied sort of remake, the the one whose name it carries. That one was a much beloved game. That second Modern Warfare game was the biggest thing on the planet when it came out. And and rightly so. It was fun. It was, a, again, I say dumb fun in the same way that like a Steven Seagal movie like Executive Decision is dumb but fun, uh, I think. That's my opinion. Uh, a common thing that I keep reading is that they're so preoccupied with the callbacks to the old games that they can't really develop a tone or personality with these ones for themselves, which, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a common thing. We talk, we talk, uh, I talk on this show a lot about how, like, Andor's the best thing Star Wars has done in a long time because it's not preoccupied with those stupid callbacks and Easter eggs to connect it to the rest of the saga, um... And I, it's odd that Call of Duty has that same problem now, but it's kind of the marvelization, you know? We can always go back and blame it on the MCU for uh, conditioning audiences to expect that everything is so inherently connected to each other in that way. Uh, and And suddenly that connection becomes more of what the plot is than the actual story that's being told in the moment, right? The gameplay of Modern Warfare 2 always being pointed out as being top-notch. All of the reviews point out this is the best-in-class first-person shooter, terrific graphics. It's just that it's got a narrative that seeks to toss the last decade of Call of Duty stories into a blender and just kind of call that good. And that stinks, you know? It's It sucks to hear that gameplay good, graphics good, it looks good, it plays good, It's it's just kind of, you know, a, a beautiful, empty vase, a vase with nothing in it. All right, that's, uh, that's kind of it for video games, but before we get into the more mainstream stuff, you know I've got one big-ass item coming up in another category, but let's stop for a moment and talk about what the biggest headline in pop culture is as of right now. It sort of fits into video games, being that social media is kind of an augmented reality game anymore, right? See, look there, I justified it. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about uh, Elon Musk's official purchase of Twitter. This matters to me. This matters because Twitter is pretty much the only social media platform I use anymore. And it matters to a lot of people because Twitter is also the social media platform favored by politicians and tech billionaires and mega celebrities with a lot of clout. Uh, liars, cheaters, space cowboys, guys named Maurice, everybody is on Twitter. Twitter's a, a big deal. And this guy bought it. This guy bought it. What does that mean? Well, on paper, 
not really anything for end users like you and me. If you happen to be a blue checkmark person on Twitter, apparently you're going to have to pay $20 a month for that status now or something. I don't know. The thought of ever paying for Twitter in any capacity is so laughable to me. Even if I were literally a millionaire whose livelihood was decided by my interaction with fans on Twitter, no fucking way. No way I'm giving money. But the Bird app, as we call it, has not changed overtly since Musk walked into the company's headquarters this last week with a uh, sink under his arm. Anyone want to tell me what the hell that was? Did you see this? He walks in carrying a sink and that's some kind of goof. I don't get it. I, I, I refuse to investigate further, honestly. Uh, but that's right, that right there, that's Elon Musk. Guy spends 40-odd billion dollars to buy a company, and his first order of business is to make a weird, corny joke, and apparently also encourage lots and lots of hate speech. Because uh, according to something called the Network Contagion Research Institute, that is a uh, group that dedicates itself to monitoring and reporting the spread of hostile ideological content online and out in the real world, possibly. According to them, there was a very big uptick in racial slurs on Twitter in the wake of Musk's deal. If you want specific numbers, well, you look, it's no big deal. It's just a 500% increase in the use of the N-word specifically in a matter of 12 hours after the purchase was finalized and announced. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a researcher, but that those numbers sound not ideal. <laughs> not ideal for anybody. Uh, but in all fairness to Twitter, their head of safety and integrity... <laughs> yeah, that's a position at Twitter, safety and integrity. I'm fucking laughing already, uh, that person stated that the uptick in hate speech is not due to the new guy in charge pledging to remove quote-unquote restrictions of free speech, i.e. restrictions on hate speech. No, not that. that. The uptick you see was just a targeted trolling campaign made by people who don't like Elon Musk or something. Their evidence of this conspiracy to inflate uh, hate speech on the platform they're, they they gave numbers, too. They Twitter said that, hey, 50,000 tweets using derogatory language came from as few as 300 accounts in the last however amount of time. So the logic of that being is, hey, look, the platform isn't becoming a hotbed of hatred and slurs. Most of the dramatic increase in racist or shitty behavior is only coming from a small amount of voices. And, I mean... Okay, point taken, I guess. I'm not sure what kind of gotcha statement it is to say, hey, look, most people on the social media app think that racial slurs are not okay. Uh, the people who do want to use racial slurs and be pricks to their fellow humans online, they did absolutely go bananas using said language with startlingly increased vigor, but it's okay, because that's just a small amount of people. I mean, hey, what if and this is just hypothetical here on my part, what if we strive for no one being bigoted assholes? What if we strive for no racial slurs? I propose, and this might be radical, I realize, what if your company and the tech platform that dictates what actually is allowed on the social media site just decided to not allow that shit? And maybe even, I don't know, enforced that stance by not digitally, not technologically even allowing it to happen. 
because you can do that. But anyway, lots of people are leaving Twitter, or at least pledging to leave, anticipating that it all is about to become a real shitty place to live, essentially. We're talking, uh, yeah. Um, I'm telling you this for free, dear listeners, I don't know where to go. I have a face and a body for podcasting, so you cannot find me on Instagram or TikTok. I'm still not sure what TikTok even is, because as we've established, I have a case of terminal oldness. Yeah, anyway, if you want something substantial to read about this whole Elon Musk Twitter fiasco, I must suggest an article that landed over at The Verge by one uh, Nilay Patel. The title is Welcome to Hell, Elon, and it's a pretty savage burn on old conflict emerald boy. Uh, the, the short, short version of this article, which is very smart and very well written, the short version is that Elon has, in Bluth family parlance, made a huge mistake. <laughs> he's, made a, he's made a huge mistake because Twitter is not a tech stack. It's not a tech platform. It's not a tech company. The app is not the product. What are we told over and over again about free social media platforms since their inception? The app is not the product. We are. Twitter is a corporation that deals in human interaction, human influence, human human engagement, right? The tech hasn't changed much since 2009, uh, but when the user the users have kind of changed the way Twitter is used, and as a consequence, it's not the same thing as it was at launch, but it kind of is on a tech level, right? Like they haven't, it's not a sophisticated machine. It's just a machine that a lot of people are invested in on a personal level. Even if Elon Musk were a tech genius, he isn't and he never has been. He's just a rich asshole who throws money at problems. He's not Tony Stark. He's Justin Hammer, kids. Uh, but even if he was a tech genius, there's no way to engineer your way out of the problems that Twitter is going to give you. Political problems public relations problems, problems with how free speech is defined, and how governments around the world monitor and moderate social media, governments that he currently does business with as SpaceX and Tesla, how long before Twitter's user content causes the Chinese government to tell him he can go fuck himself on something related to Tesla's internal computer technology, and, and how long before that starts influencing how Twitter is maintained by him. You can't engineer or buy your way out of this, you know? You, uh, All of this essentially, by the way, because he's trying to buy his way out of looking like a lame asshole on Twitter. And you can't engineer or buy your way out of that either, you dork. Uh, anyway, read that article. It's far smarter than I am, and Patel did a great job of breaking down the specific ways in which this 40-some billion dollar boondoggle is basically the most expensive mis uh, midlife crisis convertible that any man has ever bought post-divorce. And that's all I have to say about that. Let's move on to movies. We've got a big damn news item. And what's that big damn news item? After so many attempts to find a Kevin Feige for the DC Cinematic Universe, Warner Brothers Discovery has announced this last week that James Gunn and Peter Safran i uh, probably saying that wrong, sorry. Peter Safran, James Gunn, they will take on the job together starting November 1st. That's tomorrow. Folks have really come at this from the human interest angle of, uh, hey, James Gunn was fired from Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy franchise due to some admittedly immature, disgusting, shitty old tweets being dug up in bad faith to cancel him. 
that was way back in summer of 2018, which wasn't that long ago, but it seems like it was a decade ago already. But when it happened, Gunn was swiftly snatched up by the distinguished competition to do something that sounded really arduous or even downright impossible to make a sequel slash reboot to Suicide Squad. And then he did it. He just plain did that. And it was a really fun, trashy throwback to violent canon action films of the 80s and early 90s. It, it spawned a spin-off streaming series for John Cena's Peacemaker character. It was a really big win for Warner's pretty shitty 2021 same-day streaming release plan that we've talked about a lot. Uh, but James Gunn clawed a pretty solid victory out of that terrible situation, so much so that when the Suicide Squad finally did release after COVID delays, he was already back to work over at Marvel on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. He is the man walking between two worlds, more than anybody, and now he's going to run one of those worlds. That's funny. People like that. It's pretty funny. And all of the questionable moves happening over at David Zaslav's office, this was possibly the smartest thing to happen since he took over WB. I imagine that this was so widely publicized so that maybe, just maybe, that gigantic plunge in stock price over there might rebound a touch with this good news. And while everyone is excited about James Gunn being in a position of power in a place that sorely needs someone creative and bold and with a <clears throat> sense of humor, let's not sleep on talking about Peter Safran. I hope I'm, again, I hope I'm saying that right. Is it Safran? Is it Safran? I don't know. Who is he, though? Uh, he is a British dude who got his start in the entertainment business as a manager, first at a big agency called uh, Brillstein Grey. They're a very, very big uh, talent representation place. And then later he took his client list and he started his own agency. In uh, the late aughts, he started producing movies. Now, don't hold it against him, but he was a producer on that late push of really putrid spoof movies. So Meet the Spartans, Vampires Suck, The Starving Games, that run. Uh, everyone has to start somewhere, and those movies were, God help us all, profitable. So right about the time that that well dried up, he started producing The Conjuring movies and their spinoffs like Annabelle and The Nun. We talked about those last week a bit. And by establishing a relationship with Warner Brothers and with James Wan through that, he also found his way into the DC world via uh, producing Aquaman and Shazam and the sequels for both of those and the upcoming Blue Beetle movie uh, uh, starring the kid from Cobra Kai. So while James Gunn seems to be the big recognizable name tapped to be the creative influence over at the DC screen universe, uh, Safran seems to be the business counterpart, a guy who knows his way around developing talents and brands through franchise material, not just DC, but the Conjuring franchise we talked about last week, what a powerhouse that is financially. Uh, I like James Gunn a whole lot. I remember when Slither came out and I was talking with friends about how this guy might possibly be like the next coming of Sam Raimi. Turns out we were right in a way that we had no idea, we had no way of predicting. Like Raimi, James Gunn will be influencing the superhero cinema world quite a bit, which, I mean, he already has. Guardians of the Galaxy is the ensemble genre action comedy formula that everyone wants to replicate now, including Warner Brothers when they panicked at the sight of 
uh, that first Suicide Squad movie and decided to recut it to be as close to Guardians of the Galaxy as it possibly could be. Hell, that Dungeons and Dragons movie coming this next spring with uh, Chris Pine, that looks transparently like it's trying to be a fantasy Guardians of the Galaxy. Which is kind of why it looks like fun and not an overpriced slog to me. But what encourages me here is Safran, uh, which I keep I keep going back and forth on how to pronounce his name. I'm so sorry. He seems to me like the kind of guy who will put money in the right places, actually use some of the endless IP assets of the DC world instead of letting them just sit on the shelf or die on the vine or whatever metaphor you want. Think about those Conjuring movies. Did you think in 2013 that that one movie, The Conjuring, would now be three concurrent franchises going strong literally a decade later? Annabelle? Did you think that that'd be a trilogy? An Annabelle trilogy of profitable movies? It's an unexpected big win for WB, Discovery, and DC to have this guy at the purse strings and James Gunn at the creative helm working together. It's it's going to work, I think. I'm encouraged. Um, on the Marvel side of news in movies, we did get a new trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania, and it looks like uh, the majority of it is going to take place in the extremely green screen environment of the quantum realm, which I totally get from a narrative standpoint. Uh, this is the scientific frontier that's only been teased in the first two Ant-Man movies. Now it's time to do a full adventure in the strange, tiny little universe. I get it, but also, mm, in my opinion, the real advantage to the first two Ant-Man movies was how they felt more grounded in reality than a lot of the other Marvel superhero stuff going on at the time, especially that second one actually using San Francisco as a setting pretty damn well when we were, like, knee-deep in the Infinity War stuff that just kind of looked like CGI gloop behind everybody because it was all just done in green screen. But, you know, and I really hate that all of these movies are being shifted to take place almost entirely in a special effects void, but the, the real news about Ant-Man and the Wasp 3 apart from the fact that people seem really surprised that they got a third standalone movie, is that William Jackson Harper has been cast in one of those famous undisclosed roles, and the internet seems convinced that this could very well be the exact thing that I want. Me, personally. Let the record show on this podcast and on Twitter that I, Kyle R. Martinak, did in fact cast my vote for William Jackson Harper to play, Re uh, to play Reed Richards in the MCU. If this is the case, hooray! But keep in mind that according to the trailer, Ant-Man and the Wasp and the original Ant-Man and the original Wasp and Ant-Man's daughter, who now has her own suit that kind of makes her look like the Wasp, uh, they go into the quantum realm and discover entire civilizations, possibly waging their own little sci-fi fantasy war, riding on tardigrades or something like that. So th there's a real 50-50 here that William Jackson Harper is merely playing some guy or some gleep gloop or something like that in the quantum realm and not reed richards but the possibility is there and the fact that this is the biggest piece of news of this marvel movie coming soon to a theater near you is a little bit sad but we'll take it i think i will at least <sighs> i'm exhausted about all this comic book movie news isn't it kind of exhausting i'm sorry
Anyway, moving on. Quick, uh, another quick little fun casting thing. Uh, Jeff Goldblum has been cast as the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and if you're a regular listener, you might chuckle with me and say, but in what movie, Kyle? Uh, and that's a fair question. Because, as I've pointed out, there are three rival Oz-based movies happening at the same time right now. Um, yeah, well, Jeff Goldblum, I think him and his agent chose the Oz with the most potential box office, essentially. Uh, he'll be the man behind the curtain in the movie adaptation of Wicked, the two-parter uh, adaptation of the Broadway show directed by John M. Chu, uh, who recently did uh, uh, who recently did West Side Story. Obviously, this is pretty good casting. I hope that Goldblum's interest in playing a little bit of jazz piano is used in this. I hope that they take advantage of that. It'd be fun to see the Wizard of Oz noodle around on the keys in a big-budget song-and-dance extravaganza but hey nothing really further on that just thought i'd share it with you just the early stages of the deal for him to appear and i thought it was funny because any report of any of those oz movies currently in production makes me smile a little oh hollywood you basic bitch and your wizard of oz uh (laughs) last movie thing also kind of a quick tidbit Might not belong in movies, strictly speaking, but I'm putting it here anyway. Don't judge me. If you're a horror fan, as we said before, if you are a horror fan, um, you know that Mike Flanagan kicks serious ass. Mike Flanagan has made a really big name for himself in only a short couple of years as one of the big names to watch in horror movies and television. Uh, He adapted Stephen King's Gerald's Game for Netflix. That movie is absolutely bone-chilling. Uh, He also made Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining, based on Stephen King's book, Dr. Sleep, the sequel to his book, The Shining. So it's not a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, it's a sequel to the novel. Although it does take great pains to use Stanley Kubrick's The Shining on an aesthetic level to kind of mess with the audience and their expectations, uh, in a great way, I thought. Now... I don't know about anyone else, but I saw Dr. Sleep, the book, in the bookstore. See, kids, there used to be stores where they would sell these things called books. Uh, No, sorry. Reflexive dad humor uh, muscle went off. Sorry. But I saw that book on the shelf at Powell's, the giant bookstore here in Portland, and I said, a sequel to The Shining? Steve, no, don't do that. And I read the back of the book and said, this sounds terrible. Now, granted, I was very salty about Stephen King at the time. I thought Under the Dome was dreadful. Though I really liked 11.22.63 a lot. So, I don't know. Your mileage may vary on every Stephen King project at this point. But anyways, Mike Flanagan took the shaky idea of a sequel to The Shining about Danny Torrance growing up completely emotionally destroyed by the events of his childhood and turned it into one of the best horror movies of the last five years. And that's... That's my assessment of it. It's a great movie. Watch the director's cut if you can. I think it's on HBO Max right now if you haven't. Uh, Stop the podcast and go watch the director's cut of Dr. Sleep, please. But yeah, he did that in between his Netflix series uh, that he does. Every year he does a, a new horror series on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Mass. Uh, this year's is called Midnight Club. 
those are all quality from what i've heard i've only just gotten into uh haunting of hill house and it's one of the best things i've watched on netflix in years it's so damn good so yeah in my mind flanagan is the gallant to ryan murphy's goofus like he's the guy making horror right now who understands how to connect classic horror elements to normal relatable contemporary human relationships and emotions and not just strive for like cheap titillation the way ryan murphy does that's my opinion that's my assessment but anyways the news portion of this flanagan wank fest that i'm doing for you uh flanagan himself talked recently about adapting stephen king's dark tower series uh, if you don't recall, there was finally a screen adaptation of The Dark Tower, condensing the series of novels into one two-hour movie that was quite poor. Uh, quite poor. <laughs> um, it was not well done. It was supposed to dovetail with a really big adaptation of The Stand, which ended up not happening. Eventually, we got an adaptation of The Stand that was also pretty bad. But yeah, that Dark Tower movie was, it seemed very rushed. It seemed very like, oh no, we've bitten off more than we can chew. And now we can't not make the movie. So let's just crap it out and hope that nobody remembers it. And that's kind of what happened. They, they spooked it out and everybody was like, ooh, this is bad. Let's walk away from it and forget that it exists. And that was also the last time that Matthew McConaughey was like the lead of a big budget blockbuster, it felt like. But Anyway, um, Flanagan considers tackling the Dark Tower series as the biggest swing he could possibly try his hand at, and he has some really good ideas about how he would approach it that he mentioned in an interview. All I can say is, hey Netflix, hey Netflix, Netflix, you know how HBO has House of the Dragon and Amazon has Rings of Power? This could be yours. This arguably should be yours, considering your relationship with Mike Flanagan. You have but one season of Stranger Things left. Put that much money into a Dark Tower series. Or better yet, you know what? This is what I say. This is why I put this in the movie section of the podcast. Screw making this a TV series. Hour-long episode format? No. Do seven big-budget movies. Seven big, epic fantasy movies under Mike Flanagan. They're already kind of doing that with Stranger Things. They don't like doing hour-long episodes anymore. They're just like, you know what, screw it. We'll do an hour-and-a-half episode. We'll do a two-and-a-half-hour episode. Fine. Do, do big two-and-a-half-hour-long movies of every uh, Dark Tower book. Do it. Uh, and, and be the first ones to do something that big and crazy. Just drop them one right after another. Just boom, 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 one every year. Do it. It'd be the biggest big dick energy of any streamer ever. But either way, show or movies, not for nothing, Netflix, you're gonna need to fill a hole for adult audiences looking for fantasy stuff. Not just with Stranger Things, but also with another one of your big flagship titles. But, hey, more on that later. Um... Hey, guess what? Um, no comic book news this week. Sorry. Nothing gigantic happened in that industry in the last seven days. This episode is so jam-packed as it is. I'm going to skip right along to TV. Apologies to my fellow comic book folks. Uh, it's been a big news week in moving pictures, so hopefully we'll get back to the funny books another time. Again, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I watched Teen Wolf with my kids the other night, so I couldn't get over how pronounced Michael J. Fox's Canadian accent was. So I've been saying, uh, sorry, I'm um, sorry, quite a bit. Uh, my, my kids are... My kids are probably going to think that a Canadian accent is the werewolf accent, the way Eastern European is the vampire accent. So uh, to my Canadian friends, I can only say, I'm sorry. But hey, speaking of distressing things happening under David Zaslav's watch over at Warner Brothers Discovery, we didn't really talk about something like that, uh, but this is the this is the bad flip side of the coin with the James Gunn news. Something that broke after that news, but this was a decision that predates that. Uh, predates their start at DC by a country mile. Greg Berlanti's Green Lantern series for X, for HBO Max is being redeveloped and restructured. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're not 100%. Writer Seth Graham Smith delivered eight complete episode scripts for the series, uh, those scripts are going to be tossed out, and uh, the show, which was going to be centered on Alan Scott and Guy Gardner iterations of the Green Lantern characters, and it was going to go to space and feature other members of the Alien Peacekeeping Corps, it's going to be completely rebuilt to center on Jon Stewart, and boy, I'd wager, probably spend a lot more time on Earth. As we all know from this last summer, Warner Discovery has been trying like hell to manifest somewhere between two and three billion dollars worth of tax write-offs in the form of taking creative works and just hucking them in the trash so that they can claim it as a loss on their taxes, basically. Uh, Graham Smith's scripts apparently uh, are the next item to see the bottom of the dumpster, but it's largely due to the proposed budget for the series. It was going to cost a shit ton, somewhere north of like 120 million, so approaching Game of Thrones or Rings of Power size budget. Not quite there, but approaching it. Anyways, uh, yeah, Greg Berlanti's company is still attached uh, to the show, and the show will see the light of brightest day sometime in the next few years, but at present it's still stuck in blackest night of early development. Again. Hey, while we're in such a good mood, though, over that James Gunn uh, news, and that's uh, giving us such a peak of, uh, of, of good, good cheer, <laughs> did you see the trailer for the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special? That's sure something. It's sure something. I think it's a bold move in the world of Marvel to make these things they're calling specials. I really liked Werewolf by Night. That was fun, and it was it was a good gauge to as to audience interest in things like Blade and Black Knight and more Moon Knight going forward. But it was also just a nice little tidbit of Marvel content that actually had its own look and style and tone, something these movies and shows are lacking in sometimes. And I didn't know that it was a hint at something like this, a Guardians in the Galaxy holiday special that looks a lot like the majority of it will follow the intergalactic goofballs that we love, just hanging out on Earth for Christmas, going gift shopping at a mall, and most ridiculously, kidnapping one Kevin Bacon. Uh, okay, I'm all for little one-shot fun times like this, especially if there's, like, no big action sequence at all, and it's just a really unconventional family holiday comedy. I like that. I think that's good. I'm always asking for more flavors, as I say, and sometimes I get them, and even if they don't land with me perfectly, I'm not that mad about it. Like, for instance, the finale to She-Hulk was just 
skirting past the need for a big action set piece and covering it with a meta gag, that's what I'm always asking for, and I didn't really like it. But I can't be mad. I didn't want a big punching contest where She-Hulk had to fight Incel Hulk. I didn't want that. I was honestly hoping for maybe more courtroom shenanigans. I was really looking for like a My Cousin Vinny climax where Matt Murdock and Jen Walters solve a case and there's a big witness testimony moment. Maybe if you even brought in uh, Marissa Tomei. I mean, you can't anymore, I guess, but that'd be funny. Uh, You know, it'd it'd be funny and it would fit the show a lot better. Um, That's what I was looking for. And quite frankly, I found the let's make the entire finale a joke about Kevin Feige and Marvel and how outrageous it is of them to make a show like She-Hulk that doesn't follow their formula, and aren't they all so clever to acknowledge the bad, lazy, formulaic ending that they could have done and reject it? I mean, sure, but pointing out a bad ending doesn't get you off the hook for not writing a good ending in my book, in my opinion, but anyways, it seems like She-Hulk and Ms. Marvel in spots have been steps along the path towards stuff like this Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, where it's enough to get a visit from the characters you like and watch them live together and not necessarily have to save the multiverse every single time. And I net that as a positive. I think that that is a good thing that I want more of. But anyways, final news item, which was also a big deal over the weekend. Remember how Henry Cavill came out last week and was like, hey everyone, it's official, I'm coming back to play Superman. Which... Spoilers, 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 but not really anymore, I guess. Um, That announcement was kind of a spoiler for apparently a cameo he had in Black Adam. And between that and Dwayne Johnson transparently looking to fill his dance card with Superman in the future, it sounds like the plans over at WB's DC offices involve Superman more now than they did even 10 years ago, when they, (laughs) whoopsie, ended up basing their entire cinematic universe off of standalone Superman movie. That's all very haphazard. But now, that sounds like good news last week. And I, I positioned that as good news, I thought. But now we come to find out over this weekend that it comes with a hefty price. Henry Cavill announced extremely amicably that he, uh, while he's already filmed season three of The Witcher, and it comes out in the summer of 2023, that'll be his last season on the show. He did not say that filming three different movies at once, playing Superman, is the reason why he won't be playing Geralt anymore, but we can kind of infer as much from these announcements coming off the back of one another that that might be the case. Um... Not to worry, Witcher fans, this does not mean that the show is ending after season three. It means that Netflix is going to try and pass the torch James Bond or 90s Batman style. That's right, exit Henry Cavill and enter Liam Hemsworth. Huh? Liam Hemsworth. Huh? Yeah, that guy. The star of... Um, the star of... IMDB.com... Right, one of three hunky fellows from then their Hunger Games movies. Remember those? Uh, Also, he was uh, the guy who headlined Independence Day Resurgence, playing Jake. Right, Jake. Uh, 
that movie. Also, he played Billy the Kid in The Expendables 2. I don't remember that one well, but I'm pretty sure he was the only young guy on the team who gets killed so that all the old guys have a reason to hate the villain. I'm pretty sure. Look, I'm not trying to be a wise-ass or anything here. It just comes naturally. Uh, but even though we haven't seen Henry Cavill in a lot of things, probably roughly the same amount of things as Liam Hemsworth, this is a downgrade of pretty noticeable proportions, and the internet was not kind about it. Uh, someone on Twitter joked, The server just told us that they're out of filet mignon, but the chef is offering a can of SpaghettiOs. That analogy might be a little too much. I'll say this much. This, Okay, this is a tangent, but follow me here. There's a movie from the 1990s called My Fellow Americans. This is about two elderly former American presidents having to hitchhike their way across the country to, I don't know, stop January 6th from happening or something. But Jack Lemmon and James Garner, they were the presidents, okay? Anyway, in the movie, the two presidents of the United States, mind you, go to a car rental counter to try to rent a car, and the lady says, Oh, well, we've only got two cars left. Would you like a Hyundai or a Lexus? And there's a, like, a, a beat, and then she goes, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm so stupid. You know, like, not outright saying it, but the implication is, Why in hell would you want a Hyundai over a Lexus? Of course you want the Lexus. And then, you know, the punchline is they fuck up the Lexus and they have to drive the Hyundai. And then I think they crashed that one, too. It's a, it's not a great movie. But keep in mind, this joke was in 1996 when Hyundais were only... The, the only Hyundai there was was ugly, subcompact pieces of crap. And Alexis was what millionaire CEOs drove at the time, right? Uh, the joke doesn't land as hard now. Uh, it doesn't land as hard now. But uh, now you might be thinking, has Kyle had a stroke? Why is he talking about cars and this car joke from a 1996 movie, I think it's a perfect analogy for casting Geralt of Rivia in 2022. That's why. Uh, Henry Cavill is a Lexus. Liam Hemsworth is a Hyundai. That's not the gigantic slam that it used to be. Hyundais are actually kind of nice these days. Honestly, if you've been in one of the higher-end ones recently, uh, they're pretty choice quality, uh, especially for the price, and they have pretty decent get-up-and-go, some of them, the sportier ones. Now, meanwhile, a Lexus, not the prestige automobile it used to be. I know teenagers who drive a Lexus. You can buy one for about 35 grand new right now. They're essentially fancy Toyotas. So I maintain Henry Cavill is a Lexus. Liam Hemsworth is a Hyundai. It's a downgrade for sure, but it's mostly an aesthetic one and a, and a class one, not a mechanical one. Henry Cavill is a movie star. He has big movie star energy. I think we all can agree to that by now. Liam Hemsworth is a movie star's brother thus far. Uh, it remains to be seen what he's capable of, because he's mostly been cast for his pretty face and his name recognition up to this point. We haven't seen him get to do any real acting. Um, so, yeah, Cavill did fantastic work as, as Geralt of Rivia, I think. I almost think this recasting would chafe a lot less if it was uh, Cavill being replaced by Liam Hemsworth to play Superman. Honestly, I think that that would have gone over better with the internet than this, because Geralt is such a specific character that Cavill put a lot of nuance into. A lot of specific nuance that's going to be kind of a bastard for Hemsworth to try and replicate or 
or make his own. Now, Superman, that's arguably a very easy role to make your own if you have a take on it. Um, like James Bond. But hey, whatever. We can say this much, they were both very classy about it. Henry Cavill treated it in his half of the announcement like, hey, Netflix could not have picked a better guy for me to hand my swords and my medallion off to. He's going to crush it. He's going to be great. I, I have all the faith in the world in him. And Hemsworth came back with, I've got such big boots to fill. I'm such a huge fan of Henry. I'm such a huge fan of the show and the character. I know what this character means to everyone. I'm going to put all the work into it. It's going to be great. They handled it so well from a PR standpoint. You got to give them that. No one, including Netflix or anybody else, really mentioned the fact that this is probably the result of a silent bidding war between Netflix and Warner Brothers to see who would pay Cavill out the nose more to sign on to play his signature character instead of the other. Um, so we got that in our good graces. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's it, man. That's uh, that's all the spooky news that I... None of it really that spooky. Um, but that's all the news that I have for you on this fine Halloween uh, afternoon, evening, and good night. Uh, so have a great Halloween night, everybody. Uh, be safe out there. Uh, be be kind out there. There's not a lot of kindness floating around in the world anymore. So be kind, be nice, and be safe, and and have fun. And thank you always for tuning in and listening to uh, the Great Media Sandwich. Uh, it's the Great Pumpkin of my life. Charlie Brown is this podcast. So I thank you for participating on the listening end. And if you want to send me any news items, you can at our Gmail address. That is mediasandwichshow at gmail.com. Or you can do it via Twitter, <laughs> for now, at media underscore sandwich. And uh, yeah, you can also check out uh, the blog, media-sandwich.com. I did some movie reviews over the course of uh, the Halloween season. I did review... Um, Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood, a very wonderful classic from 1959. Uh, I reviewed Halloween Ends on there, as you've heard a couple of weeks now. A uh, big review on Halloween Ends. And you can check out my other Letterboxd reviews at Letterboxd, as I said. And, uh, yeah, until next week, I'm Kyle Martinek, and I am going to get the sandwich! Ha ha ha!